Okay, there we go. So, uh, how would you like to proceed? Well, I think we um, we have some questions. A couple of questions you'd like to ask, or you could just no questions are fine. Questions are fine. It's an honest way to make a living, right? Answering questions. <laughs> Um, maybe I'll just quickly introduce the students, or if you want to just quickly say your name. Um, I'm Jackson. Hey, Jackson. Ethan. What's that? Ethan. Ethan. Yes. I'm Emma. Hey, Emma. Hi. Okay, should we start maybe with some questions? Yeah, sure. Whatever you like. Sure. So we've been reading your Gita, and we've gone over the... Um, uh, a little bit of the, uh, the first three chapters, and then we're almost finished um, the the translation of chapter two. And I think Ethan, did you want to start with a couple of questions or, or Jackson, whatever reason you Sure. Um, uh, Jackson, if you could just move over a little bit toward Ethan, I could I could see you. There you go. Oh, there's good old Emma. <laughs> Okay, um, first of all, on a light note, um, celibacy seems pretty, uh, not very fun. <laughs> why, why, why exactly do you choose to pursue that? Why do I choose to do what? Be celibate. Oh, be celibate. I guess I just wanted to go along with everybody else nowadays. Just kidding. Okay, so <laughs> to the, uh, First question is why I chose to be celibate. That's a good question. I've, I've been explaining to the charity of the significance of what it means to be a sannyasi and what, right. uh, yeah, the category right. that goes on Okay, I guess, you know, the first thing I would say, and then I'll, of course, try to explain it, is that at a certain point in my life, I felt it was in my rational self-interest. So then the question is, why did I, why did I come to that conclusion? that uh, very much a minority conclusion. Um, well, <clears throat> when I was your age, when I was uh, younger, I was a student at Berkeley. I, I'm from California. And, um, and so I did actually have a, you know, pretty good amount of experience of non-celibacy. And, um, and then I, I joined the Hare Krishna movement, right? Still trying to figure that one out. And uh, so then I, um, after I'd been in the movement about a year and a half, I, I married. And I, and so I also experienced that briefly, you know, married life, had an excellent wife, and we're still, we're still good friends. Um, I guess, I was experiencing, not simply experiencing so much pleasure in my spiritual practice of bhakti yoga, but it was a certain kind of pleasure. Um, it wasn't just um, sort of a blind, pleasurable sensation, like something out of Brave New World. But there's a kind of happiness which comes with understanding that you see something that's true, that's uh, significantly true. And the pleasure is really inseparable from the awareness, the realization, the knowledge. 
And so, um, especially because the whole, I mean, the whole thing is meant to understand that we're not the body, that we're actually eternal souls. And so, um, so I would say the general attitude toward bodily pleasure or, or the attitude that Krishna teaches in the Gita is that in moderation, it's necessary. We have material bodies. We have a certain, you could say, uh, human reality. And uh, the body has needs. The body has desires. And so uh, what Krishna teaches is that to satisfy your bodily desires in moderation. And of course, that changes from person to person. For example, let's say someone is a really uh, advanced athlete. What they call a good workout may not be what it is for other people. Let's say for an average person, a good workout may be, you know, maybe, you know, a half hour of vigorous exercise or at most an hour. But for a really trained athlete, that may be just a warm up. And so even in the university, I mean, you know, there's undergraduate, graduate, there's all these different levels, there's introductory courses, there's advanced courses and so on. And so I think of bhakti yoga as like, you know, it's like spiritual training. Just like if you're getting your body into shape through, I don't know, you know, workouts or yoga, or whatever you're doing, you start at wherever you're at and then you hope to advance and, and as you as you as you achieve a higher state of fitness then you know what it takes to give you a good workout may may be more than it was before so i reached a point in my spiritual life where the idea of traveling around the world and trying to give people this knowledge was just thrilling to me it was um i just couldn't imagine anything i'd rather do than that i mean just talking to you now is a pleasure so uh in krishna consciousness and frankly in 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 most parts of the world up until recently uh the sort of the uh highest physical intimacy between two people which is sexual intercourse was seen as something which is reserved for people who have made a serious commitment to each other and in a sense uh, if a person um, thinks highly of themselves, not in a narcissistic way, but uh, in the sense of, of recognizing that actually, uh, you know, you are something extraordinary, an eternal spiritual being. And that is so, um, it's such an amazing thing that, that you start to take yourself more seriously. And you start to see, you start to place much more value and importance on the decisions you make in life. And when you have something really valuable, you don't want to lose it. You know, if someone is, uh, what's that old Bob Dylan song, like a Rolling Stone? Do you guys know that? Yeah. You do. Whew, there's some hope. So I remember when I first heard that song, actually, I was. <laughs> I must have been about 16 or something and i was cruising the sunset strip that's what you did in la you never actually meet anybody because the city was just so spaced out but you you always entertain the false hope that you would meet someone so anyway I, I was with some friends you know we were 
cruising on the sunset, driving down the sunset strip. And that song came on the radio because in those days, you know, you didn't stream music or download music or if it wasn't on the, you had two choices. You go out and buy a vinyl record or you could listen to the radio. Those are the only two choices. So that song came on like a Rolling Stone. And um, actually, as soon as I heard, I knew, wow, this is something different. I knew it was kind of like, this is an, a different kind of song. But anyway, one of the lines in the song is, um, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. And so, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a very common psychological and even sociological phenomenon that people that feel completely disempowered uh, take more risk in their, you know, because they feel they have nothing to lose. And so, uh, like people in Iraq right now, if you're following the news, all these, uh, actually all around the world in Chile, of course, I have some, we have some uh, close associates in Santiago, so they're kind of keeping me abreast of that. But all over the world now, people are just, um, you know, just losing their patience with, with terrible, corrupt governments. But anyway, but when you do have something, when you've got a lot, when you feel that you've somehow received something of extraordinary value, then you want to protect it very carefully, whether it's a relationship someone let's say who for a long time was lonely or just not satisfied in their relationships and then you meet someone you can truly love and that truly loves you uh then uh you value that relationship so much that you you're very careful not to in any way endanger that relationship because you want to preserve it or let's say someone was suffering because of poverty and then somehow they they get some money and their life changes and they value it and they, you know, they're very careful not to, not to waste it, not to lose it. So when you receive an extraordinary gift of, of higher consciousness, then you place great value on it and you realize that it would be a disaster to lose it because you compare that higher consciousness with, with what you used to experience and you realize that I can't go back to the way I was because it would be tragic because what I have now is so much greater. And so you protect that higher consciousness and you realize that certain kinds of behavior will in fact uh, cause you to forfeit that consciousness. And so, um, so I think it's in that spirit. It, it, it's really in the spirit of pursuing one's rational self-interest that people agree to um, adopt certain principles. For example, let's say you're, if, you're, if someone's trying out for the Olympics, I mean, their dream in life is to win an Olympic medal and their friends want to go out to the bar every night, you know, and just booze up and, and stay out all night. They're not going to do that. If, if someone's really serious or the same thing, let's, let's say you're serious about your career, you're serious about your family, Let's say you marry and you have children. And, then, and when you have children, of course, everything changes if you're a good parent. And so there are certain things in life that are so valuable that you'll do whatever it takes to protect them, to preserve them, and, and not to lose them. And so I think it was in that spirit that I adopted a serious spiritual practice, not because of any type of fanatical sentiment. I actually have a natural aversion to fanaticism of any kind, whether it's in related to Krishna or anyone else. 
And um, that's it. So as far as uh, taking a vow of celibacy, which I did after, I would say, a significant amount of experience, um, I became absolutely convinced that this is, this is completely in my self-interest. This will lead me to the greatest possible happiness. And on various levels, it will fulfill my deepest desires. And if I hadn't felt that based on my own experience, I never would have done it. What do you think it is about sex? Oh, what was there about sex? Okay. First of all, sex is not bad or evil or nasty. It's just something that bodies do. However, um, sex is perhaps the um, most intense material pleasure. And people could debate that, but, but it, it would definitely be a strong candidate for most intense material pleasure. And so there's recreational sex, of course, and there's reproductive sex. And uh, of course, there could be reproductive sex just because two people are really bored with each other, but they want a child. But then there's, <laughs> then there's reproductive sex, which is done in a, in a spirit of, uh, of service to God. And so if, as is the case, I'm trying to understand myself as an eternal soul different than the body then if i immerse myself in bodily consciousness if i become attached to the body then uh i lose that consciousness for example let's say someone's a public official but they're very attached to their family so they engage in nepotism or uh you know all kinds of corruption in other words just your normal contemporary political system so the general i i think the whole thing about sex uh i i would i would appeal here to a larger more universal principle and that is your ability to be objective about your own self-interest about your duty to others about what's right and wrong your ability to be lucid and objective uh, is compromised by bodily attachment. For example, if you are being interviewed for a jury, a jury, of course, you can be disqualified for things like being intelligent. I don't know if you know about jury selection, but lawyers actually, they want people they can manipulate. So if you sound intelligent, they will not want you on the jury. But if, if they're selecting a jury and let's say some man is accused of murder and his mother wants to be on the jury, uh, that's not going to happen, at least in not, not in every part of America. So, so why? I mean, why can't, why can't someone's mother be on the jury? Because of that attachment or, or, or their wife or, their, or, or if it's a woman, their husband or their child or their parents, because it's understood even in civil society, that uh, attachment is in tension with objectivity. And uh, so, for example, let's say, let's say some kid is applying to get into a college, a relative of that student can't be on the admissions committee. So, I mean, it's just, 
it's just a universally recognized principle that there is a tension between even a contradiction between objectivity, total fairness, and uh, and attachment. And attachment. And so it's the same thing. Uh, sex is not bad. It's like everything else. It's good at the right time and place. And it's bad at the wrong time and place, like everything else. So, um, and, and, you know, we can directly experience that. We can directly experience that. If someone is engaged in spiritual life, and let's say they kind of slip and they uh, are not able to strictly follow their principles and so they do something against the principles, they directly experience that. So it's it's really a spiritual science. It's not, I mean, we're not just prudish or, uh, you know, we think the body is somehow dirty and bad. By the way, I don't know if you know where that came from, but um, uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, before he embraced Christianity, and we're talking about probably the most influential, he's considered the most influential Christian theologian uh, for, for many, many centuries, in the, um, basically throughout the Middle Ages and, and uh, for many centuries. So before he actually became a Christian, uh, like his mother, his mother was Santa Monica, St. Monica, if you want to know where the beach name came from. So anyway, he... Um, he he was a Manichaean. That, that was a uh, an ancient group, the Manichaeans, who followed a Persian prophet named Money, who was trying to solve uh, the problem of evil, the philosophical problem of evil. Like, if there's a god, why is there so much bad stuff in this world? And so Money had a um, a very provocative answer to that question. He said the reason is because actually the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the God of Jesus, the God of, you know, God, uh, who created this world is actually the devil. And therefore the world is intrinsically evil, our bodies are evil, and um, et cetera, et cetera. And money, of course, died prematurely uh, because of his philosophy is so provocative. But so this Augustine for 10 years as an adult, Augustine was obviously a really smart guy Although, I mean, emotionally, I don't know. He was the first official Christian leader, Bishop of Hippo, that actually advocated, who, who, quite misogynistic, and he was the first one to officially advocate uh, the that we should kill heretics. So, kind of a complex figure there. So he becomes a Christian, but you know, if during, if as a young adult for ten years you're in some movement, you never really get fully away from it. You start to get this stuff, you know, with with, with, um, with Augustine that you know the body's kind of bad, and therefore you know women are like yuck and all this stuff, which is not really healthy. And by the way, and just as another side of this, then I'll get back to, but this is just sort of little interesting bit of classical history. And that is Augustine also advocated, and he was a very literate person. So when I say advocated, I mean, he wrote some really, uh, you know, some really impressive essay on the subject. He advocated infant baptism. And why he advocated, of course, is connected to all this. 
because in the first few centuries of Christianity, baptism was very much like um, initiation, let's say, in, for example, in our spiritual tradition or others, in the sense that you, you make a vow. Even the word devotee, of course, in the Latin, devoto, which means by a vow, you know, voto. And so initiation meant that you, you take a vow, a sacred vow, and then you follow it. And so to be, to be um, baptized as a Christian, you had to vow to be, you know, chaste, sex only in marriage, and all kinds of things. So that's why Constantine, you know, the Roman emperor who kind of popularized Christianity and very, very, yeah, very clever marketing strategy, you know, he would punish you if you didn't do it. So anyway, um, he refused himself baptism until his deathbed because he said, hey, I'm an emperor, you know, I kill people and I have lots of women, so, so I can't be baptized. So anyway, so that was baptism. But then when you bring in this philosophy, how the body is so, yes, it's like horrible and we're so evil and we're fallen and God despises us, but he may save us anyway if we're lucky. I mean, if you look at the sermons of, of um, John Edwards of Yale University, early 1700s. I mean, it's unbelievable. He was like a real Puritan preacher that you are repulsive, you are disgusting, God loathes you, he abhors the sight of you. And there, but, but the upshot of all that, like the conclusion of all that loathing and you know, disgustingness, the upshot of it is that you can't save yourself. You can't practice spiritual life. You can't practice bhakti yoga because you're just so disgusting that you're always, you know, you can't help yourself. Therefore, why not baptize infants? Because they can't purify themselves anyway. They can never really earn their salvation. So it was kind of a, um, I remember when I was an undergraduate at UCLA, I had this really good class in early Christian history. And the professor was saying how this philosophy kind of cut a vital nerve in the Christian movement because baptism, becoming a Christian, was just something you were born into. It's not like you earned it. It's not like it lost its value. It's not like you say you win a trophy because you're a great athlete or you win an academic prize or you just, you know, you really earn something and it means something to you. So when you, infant baptism kind of cut that nerve. Anyway, um, how do I get into all that? So getting back to getting back to the uh, Hare Krishna farm here. Um, so the point here is that um, we accept that you, as an intelligent soul, with, uh, you know, you, with intrinsic spiritual understanding, if you care to revive it, that you can advance by your own diligence, by your own sincerity you can make spiritual advancement and therefore we just I, I would say in a sense of a spiritual science we calculate uh you know any activity is this activity my rational self-interest i always say that um you know i have a i have actually a proof of god and that is the proof of god is that i survived my teenage years that i'm still alive because anyway so, um, now, also, it depends on how much we have 
have to lose. Again, if you think that, let's say, for example, in your life, there's no great ecstasy in your life. You're not seeing God. You're not having super spiritual experiences. You're just a college student. And, you know, you're not depressed, but you're not ecstatic. It's just life. And so you may think, well, you know, it's no big deal. If I follow this principle or don't follow this principle, it's, it's not going to change my life that much. What do I have to lose? But if you experience something like really an elevated spiritual consciousness, not something like, you know, someone drops an LSD tab or something that's kind of dating myself, I guess. Or, you know, someone has just some kind of experience. But let's say that's actually, by the way, why I uh, actually joined the Hare Krishna movement. Oh, my God. What was I thinking? Anyway, because my, my idea was that um, I, was, I was like 19 or 20 years old, traveled all around Europe. I literally survived a motorcycle going off a cliff on a Greek island. Yeah. Actually, my girlfriend was in the backseat. And um, she later blamed herself. I didn't blame her, but she blamed herself later because she was taking diet pills, which in those days weren't so advanced, and they put you in really bad moods. And so she kept just kind of like nagging me, watch out with this, her version of it. I'm not blaming her. So, And so we were coming around a curve, and I swerved, truck was coming. And next thing I knew, I swear to God, I was like this, holding on to the edge of a cliff, and the motorcycle like bounced down into the bottom. And... Um, she actually broke her leg and she fell on the street side. But anyway, so that happened in Greece. And then I went to North Africa, was held up at knife point in Morocco and somehow talked my way out of it. And so I was having all these adventures, went to the Arctic Circle to see what that was like. And so I was kind of going here and there. And uh, plus I was from Berkeley. So I was in the middle of all these revolutionary activities. After experiencing all these things, I, I was on a train going from, I think, Malaga, from southern Spain. I was taking a train back to Madrid to go to Paris. And um, I was keeping a journal. And I, I came to a, a serious decision that uh, the material world seemed absurd to me. There was no ultimate purpose on the material level, which is true. Because on the level of materialism, I mean, a priori, in terms of just simple logic, there can't be a metaphysical purpose. A um, Okay, sorry about this, but in a strictly materialistic worldview, you cannot have, you know, real teleology. The Greek word telos means a goal, an object. And teleology means the belief that there are objective purposes in life, not just purposes you give yourself. Like, for example, you can say, okay, today I'm going to go out and buy an ice cream cone. So you gave yourself a purpose and you can decide, no, I'm not going to do that. Or you can decide, I'm going to get a college degree. So we give ourselves purposes all the time, big and small. Teleology goes beyond that and says there are objective purposes in the universe. So the question, why was I born, actually has an answer. And so if you, I don't know if I'm trying to get into this now, but philosophical materialism is egregiously self-contradictory but maybe let's save it for another time. I mean, in a logical sense, not because you haven't taken the word of God, you know, not something that's not, not like that. It's just internally, logically self-contradictory, philosophical materialism. Uh, okay, very quickly, since I 
Yeah. Because um, we live in a bi-dimensional universe, and we can prove that. I'll try to do this very quickly so I can get back to the other topic. But th here's the proof that we live in a bi-dimensional universe, which is both physical and metaphysical. Um, there are certain things that we believe to be self-evidently true, such as that there's a real world outside our mind and that um, it's wrong to kill people, innocent people, uh, or somehow people are equal, even if they don't all have the same level of education. They're not all equal athletes. Uh, but somehow people are equal. That's the basis of democracy, of course, and, and of our concept of justice. And it's a very ancient concept of justice, you know, the symbol of the, the goddess of justice, blindfolded, holding the scales, weighing the evidence, and blindfolded so there's no preference for anyone on any ground not relevant to the actual facts of the case. So, so that's a metaphysical fact. If you believe that somehow people are equal, if you believe that we have anything like human rights, if you believe that um, it's wrong, let's say, to go and murder innocent people, if you believe those things are wrong, then you live in a, in a bi-dimension because none of those are empirical facts. There's no possible way an empirical experiment will show justice, equality, the evil of harming innocent people, and so on. And yet, even to do empirical science, uh, you have to make a metaphysical leap. Empirical science is based on a leap of faith. Scientists would know that if they were required to take philosophy courses, uh, but of course they're not. So, because Descartes, you know, our French buddy, René Descartes, he brought this up in the 1600s in his meditations. He said, what if, what if you are actually just a brain in the laboratory of an evil genius? And that evil genius is manipulating your brain chemically or neurologically somehow to make you believe you have a body, that you live in Texas, that Texas just beat Texas A&M in a football game. And, and, and so, and so uh, anyway, that was kind of a side point. But so everything that you think is true in the world, that there is a world at all, is an illusion. It, none of that is really true. Your brain is just being manipulated. And, and we already know that virtual reality technology is, is actually surpassing our ability to detect illusion from reality. For example, digital graphics, the movies. I mean, technology has now gone beyond our ability to detect uh, illusion from reality. And so what if that's your case? In the modern version of it, among modern philosophers, they talk about a brain in a vat. I don't know why they changed the brain in the laboratory, but they wanted to say a brain in a vat. Anyway, so therefore, if you want to do empirical science, you have to make, in a sense, a leap, a metaphysical leap. And that is, you have to decide that as far as you're concerned, even though you can't prove it, there really is a world outside your mind. And so if someone says, well, why do you make that leap? There's only one possible answer, really. And that is that, um, and this goes all the way back to Aristotle, another good friend of mine. Anyway, Aristotle said that whatever you say, someone can ask you to prove it. 
and then when you prove it, they can ask you to prove that. You can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. The example I always give, and I always tell myself, think of another example. This one's getting old, but could you please remind me tomorrow to think of another example? Okay, let's say someone claims that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. And someone else says, no, I don't believe it. Prove it. You say, you say, okay, put a pot of water on the stove, stick it a thermometer, and lo and behold, 100 degrees Celsius, boom, it boils. And the person says, you, you thought I was going to fall for that, right? I don't believe that's real water. I think you put something in the water to change the boiling temperature. Or maybe that's not real mercury in the thermometer. Okay, now you've got to bring in water testing chemicals and mercury testing chemicals. Then they could say, well, I don't believe those are real water testing chemicals. In other words, you get the idea. So Aristotle pointed out that whatever you claim is true, anything about God, about you know, the football team, anything you claim is true, you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. And when that happens, no one can ever claim to know anything. And yet Aristotle says, we do know things. So therefore, he said, the way you break this infinite regress is that you have to declare earnestly, not just, you know, as a trick, you have to declare that there is some fact in the world which is self-evident, which is self, it proves itself. For example, let's say the sun is in the sky. And um, and someone says, I don't believe the sun is in the sky. So you say, look, there's the sun. And they, so that's all you can do. You can't bring in some kind of light, focus it on the sun. Here, let me, let me make that a little brighter for you. No, you can't, I think, like the old saying goes, you can't hold a candle to the sun. So the sun is self-evident. It reveals itself. If someone claims they can't see the sun, there are three possibilities. Number one, they're physically impaired. Number two, they're lying for some reason. Or number three, are crazy. But it's not possible for someone whose senses, vision is working, you know, roughly normally, who is speaking in earnest and who is saying not to see the sun. And so if someone claims they don't see the sun, something else is going on. So that's self-evident. So now in the case of empirical science, a scientist, they don't actually go through this because they don't know philosophy. However, what they're doing in fact is claiming that the reality of the world outside our minds is self-evident. It proves itself to me by the quality of, our, of, of, of my experience. And here's another example that we've all had probably thousands of times. Get some, get some water. You, oh, you go to sleep at night, you dream, and you wake up. And sometimes that's very disappointing because you were having a really good dream. But, but um, when you wake up, within a few moments, you conclude, you decide, that uh, your waking state is more real than your dream state. That even though while you were dreaming, you didn't doubt the reality of it, although sometimes people dream that they're dreaming, but they're still dreaming because they're, they're dreaming that they're dreaming. So 
So the question is, let's say you're having a dream, you wake up, you make the decision we all do that, okay, now I woke up from a dream, this is more real, and what if I say to you, prove it? How are you going to prove it? There's no way you can prove it. If I say, you know, actually the dream was more real and now you think you woke up and actually you're dreaming. So prove it. Prove that that's not the key. You can't. All you can say is, oh, come on in. Hey, Ganapati, we're doing a live show. So if you want to sing or dance or one so as an old friend of mine he's also a, uh, a preacher man so um <laughs> so when you claim that when you woke up that's more real all you can say and it's actually sufficient is that it's self-evident to me the nature and quality of the experience of waking up proves itself to me and therefore it doesn't require any extrinsic proof, it proves itself, it's self-evident. Now those are two examples. By the way, our American political system, at least what it's supposed to be, is based on the same principle. That's why Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, he was a learned guy, he knew philosophy, he begins his Declaration of Independence by setting his uh, epistemological boundaries and he said that, uh, well, not the very beginning, but soon after, he says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that we're all created equal, endowed by a creator with certain inalienable rights. Now, Jefferson, he didn't just think, hey, that sounds good. He was using a technical philosophical term because to say we hold these truths to be self-evident means that he could not be pushed by the government of Britain, the king or the parliament, into a defensive posture of trying to justify what he said. Now Hume, uh, uh, Jefferson was also undoubtedly aware of the havoc caused by David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, just who, who was one maybe generation before Jefferson. Because Hume said that you cannot derive a metaphysical fact from a physical fact. Let's say, for example, someone does something that is non-controversially evil, like killing an innocent person. And it's not that by killing that innocent person, he saved a million other innocent people. No, there's no redeeming facts here. It's just a wanton, senseless, purposeless act of evil to kill an innocent person. Now, uh, you can study that act empirically and you won't find the metaphysical fact that it's evil. There's nothing you can do. You can, there, there's nothing about the empirical, you can do, uh, what do they call it? Um, the, um, oh my God, the forensics. You know, do all the forensic studies. You can do psychological studies of the killer. You can do everything. None of that will produce None of that will produce a metaphysical fact that this was morally evil. Yes. What if I ask people who are familiar with that murder how it made them feel? Yeah. And then were, was able to determine that it was wrong simply because it made people 
in general feel worse off. Yeah, I, I think that's a horrible uh, attempt at philosophy to say that. Well, yeah, because I mean to say that it's evil. Because then, what about, for example, in Nazi Germany, where you get millions of people feeling very good about genocide? If people's, fe yeah, people's feelings are the measure, then what about when people feel good about evil and feel bad about virtue? Like, what about, for example, some people feel terrible about the idea of racial equality? They think that's, you know, going to ruin society. So, so people's feelings can never be the measure of good and evil. Unless, I mean, we're not just talking about people's feelings, but now if someone says, I don't just feel that way, well, let me take it a step further and, and you know, sort of justify the feeling idea. It's just like we agree, we, well, we agreed, right? Everything I say you agreed to. You can see I have a problem. Anyway. So um, let's say it's true that we do claim that certain things are self-evident, like the fact that uh, there's a real world outside our minds, the fact that we're created equal. Oh, because of Hume, Jefferson, I, let me finish that up, he said that it, we're self-evidently equal, but he derived it not from a physical fact, but from a metaphysical fact that there's a creator. And in the eyes of the creator were equal. So to avoid an objection by Hume, he derives the metaphysical fact of equality from a metaphysical fact, namely that we're created by a creator who sees us all equally. So if someone says, it's not merely that I feel it's wrong, but I know it's wrong, and it's self-evident to me that it's wrong, it's actually self-evident to me that it's wrong. That when I see an act of evil, when I hear an act of evil, like that someone killed an innocent person, I know that it's wrong as deeply as I know there's a real world out there. So what we're doing is we're doing the same thing empirical scientists do. Structurally, in terms of you know philosophical structure, we're doing the same thing. We're saying it is a self-evident metaphysical fact that it's wrong to, to harm innocent people. And the scientists say, we well, can't prove it, which again shows they wouldn't know philosophy if they tripped over it. We would just say, you can't prove there's a real world outside your mind. And obviously, if the scientist says something like, look, here's an iPhone. By the way, this iPhone is for sale, if, I'm just kidding. Anyway. So if I say, like, this is my hand, you know, you, I can touch it, you can touch it, but that's circular reasoning. It's an ob obvious logical fallacy because my hand is real only if the world's real. So therefore, and if the world is not real, my hand is not real. So therefore, the scientist cannot prove within the empirical system that there's a real world, that there's a real empirical world. You'd have to prove it from outside the system because if you prove something within the same system, you just fall into circular reasoning. So if you believe that there's some sense in which we're all equal, you know, maybe everyone may not get the same SAT score, 
or be able to run the 100-yard dash in the same speed or play a violin as well as another person. But despite all the differences in our abilities, whether musical, emotional, whatever, uh, still we're equal. It's not that if you come to court, you don't get a fair trial because you can't play the violin as well as you know the person is suing you or someone else has more money. Well, actually, you can do that in this country. But, but still, the idea is, the theory is, that despite our obvious inequalities, in fact, 100%, 100% of the empirical evidence shows that we're not equal. In fact, there is zero empirical evidence that we are equal. Whether it's, you know, the five of us here, one, two, three, four, yeah, five. I can still count to five. I'm not cognitively impaired yet. I can still count to five. So, so all the empirical evidence, every, any conceivable empirical test you could apply to humanity will show we're not equal. And yet in establishing our political system, we reject 100% of the empirical evidence and 100% we create a system based on metaphysical evidence which is that it's self-evident to us that we're equal. So therefore, if we're basing our whole political system on a metaphysical fact in preference to an empirical fact, and if we're not just being crazy, then we live in a bi-dimensional universe. So getting back to the original question of, you know, everyone's favorite activity, celibacy, um, if you really, if you really understand that you live in a bi-dimensional universe and you want to explore the metaphysical dimension because you understand, just like as in the case of establishing a, a political system based on equality, or for example, the fact that people out of love will give their lives for those they most love, you know, for their children, for their, for other people, for their country and so on. And so th there are innumerable examples where we actually subordinate the empirical to the metaphysical, the physical to the metaphysical. And so if, if you ask the obvious questions, like why is that the case? What else must be true if we actually live in a bi-dimensional universe? And how did the universe get to be that way? And where does it all come from? And so when you start to become interested in that, and you can call it spiritual life or metaphysical, whatever word you want to use, then, and if you start to have very powerful spiritual experiences that, I don't want to say trivialize everything you've experienced before, because that's kind of impolite, but are so much greater. I mean, you suddenly see things you never imagined you could ever see before. And, and, and it's not a question of, it's not, how should I put it, binary or zero-sum game. It's not that, oh my God, I experienced Krishna, now I hate my family or I don't care about my country, or, you know, I don't care about anything, or I don't care if I'm healthy or sick anymore. It, it's not that kind of craziness. It's you, it's not that you don't see value in the things you value now. That continues. It's just you realize there is some infinitely greater value, which is what gives value to everything you care about now. And, I mean, you find this in all spiritual traditions, not just ours. I mean, any spiritual tradition that really brought people to higher consciousness, 
you know, all over the world, it doesn't matter whether it's Sufis or yogis or mystic Christians and Jews or Buddhists. I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere in the wisdom literature of the world, you find people giving these testimonies. They've been doing so for thousands and thousands of years in every corner of the earth that when their eyes were opened, when they saw this higher truth, they realized, wow, I really had no idea of what's out there. And at that point, you really want to preserve that consciousness. You don't want to lose it. Because you realize that if I lose this consciousness, I will fall back into illusion. Yes. What would you say it is about Krishna and Bhakti Yoga that brings us toward Krishna consciousness like on a metaphysical level? Krishna and Bhakti Yoga, funny you should ask that. Um, I'm also, you know, an authorized representative of Krishna and Bhakti Yoga. So, um, we, we accept, those of us who drank this Vedic Kool-Aid, you know, we accept, just kidding, um, we accept that, um, that Krishna is the absolute truth not instead of someone else's God. In other words, we're not saying that other people are not worshiping God, they are. I mean, if they, I think people who in the name of God kill innocent people, no, I wouldn't include them. But I would say anyone who is trying to worship God the best of their ability and, you know, is a reasonably decent human being is not committing atrocities in the name of religion, uh, I would say they are worshiping God. There, there are different conceptions of God because, because you could say that these conceptions are filtered through different historical cultures. And um, for example, if, if you look at the history of art, even to make it simple here, just look at the history of Western art. And let's say you, you could probably do this actually to get a doctorate in history of art, but let's say you studied the way that trees are depicted throughout Western art history. And you looked at all the different schools of art. And uh, so, but the point is, those are all trees. I mean, the fact that trees, even though their trees have been depicted in so many different ways, from kind of quasi-abstract to photographic realism to romanticized, surrealistic, and I'm actually pretending that I know something about art. I'm just like throwing out these words, but I know a little bit. So. Now, there was a, um, how should I put it? There was a, a philosopher, a pre-Socratic Greek philosopher named uh, Xenophon, who thought he was really clever. And he's the first person, I think, that's known to us in the West who gave an argument against what he considered to be anthropomorphized gods, like making God in your image. And he said that, uh, look, he said, we Greeks have gods, and the Egyptians have gods, and the Thracians, I think it's now Albania, Thracians have gods, and if you look at all these pictures and statues of the gods, you know, guess what? Greek gods look like Greeks, and Egyptian gods look like Egyptians, and so on and so forth. And he said, if horses and lions and oxen had hands and could draw, you'd get gods that look like horses and oxen and lions and everything. So I think he thought this was really like, an, like a slam dunk or something, but actually uh, it's not. It's actually not a strong argument. For the, going back to our art analogy, 
that um, even though artists have depicted trees in many different ways, in different trees, depending on you know what latitude they lived in or what kind of geography, but still, trees really exist. And the fact that, for example, Jesus. Jesus actually was a historical character to the best of our knowledge. Uh, and the general evidence, is, generally the evidence is given is that he's described by Roman historians who had no religious interest in Jesus whatsoever, but who say that there is a man named Jesus. And apparently he was born in Galilee. And he has some followers in, in Israel. And uh, his followers claim he's a miracle worker. So... So as far as the historicity of Jesus, I won't go into that whole question about the, I mean, there's a lot of academic issues there, but at least the fact that there was a person like that from third party sources. So, um, so even though people, I mean, I mean, the fact that people tend to filter God through their own psyche, their own psychology, their own cultural and emotional experience, um, still there's a family resemblance. I mean, the fact that people all around the world are reporting this uh, would tend to indicate there is such a person and not that there isn't. And further, I would say that, um, further, I would say that just as I think it's logically the case, just like there can't be a square circle, I think logically empirical science can never give a complete description of reality for the simple reason that empirical science itself depends on all kinds of metaphysical assumptions, and yet it focuses only on empirical facts, and therefore, since we know there are metaphysical facts in the world, empirical science, a priori, can never give a complete description of reality. I would say also that, that an impersonal concept of God, that God is just energy or light, I would say also logically uh, can never provide a complete description of reality. And the reason is, that um, there's a principle that we all accept. In fact, it's used in almost every academic department in your school. And that is that uh, causes are somehow present in effects. For example, let's say you're taking a history course and you're studying something that happened like the Vietnam War. And so you raise the question, how did that happen? Like what, how did America get itself involved in this? And then you have to go back to the cause. So, so you have an effect. There was a war. America did go to war in Vietnam. Now, if you're saying why, how did that happen? Then you, you reverse the time arrow. The events leading America to the war in Vietnam, uh, you know, went were unidirectional. They went in a certain direction. This happened, and that happened, and this caused that, and that caused this, and so it goes in a certain direction. Time moves in a certain direction. And yet, to analyze it, you have to reverse that direction. You start with the effect and you go step by step back to the causes. You do the same thing in uh, medical research. You do the same thing in, in psychological research. You start with a condition like Freud started with a fact that people are kind of, a lot of people are messed up in this world. And so he was trying to understand how did they get that way? So then he reasoned his way back and some of his stuff was good and some of it was kind of really neurotic, but so, I mean, but in general analysis, like there's a fender bender on the road, right? You start with the effect and all the insurance people rush out and where are the skid marks and where are the dents on the cars, what are the position of the cars and everything. They're reasoning backward. That's how you, what you do is 
you go backward through the causal chain. So in the same way, this universe is an effect. It's an effect. And in a sense, there's, uh, I don't know, there's an argument, a philosophical argument called the argument from contingency, which kind of demonstrates why this world must be an effect. So I'll go through that very quickly. Um, if we study, if we look at everything in the world, everything you've ever experienced in this world depends on something else for its existence. Like the chair you're sitting in, someone built the chair. Or the planet you're on, you know, it has a history. The planet has a history. Your body has a history. Without your parents, you would not be inhabiting that fine young body. And so, so therefore, in philosophical terms, said that everything in this world is contingent, which means it depends on something else for its existence. So how will you answer the question, if everything in the universe depends on something else, why does anything exist and not nothing? I mean, you're welcome to try if you want, but it's a tough one. Why does, why does anything at all exist? Or how can anything at all exist if everything that does exist depends on something else? So therefore, the idea is, I'm talking to the University of Texas. So therefore, the idea is that there must be something which is not contingent, something which uh, exists independently, autonomously, which you can call God or some other word if people have, you know, mental emotional problems with that word. So, um, oh, uh, Nandali, uh, could you move the micro? I, we lost Emma, actually. Sorry. Um, we had to plug back into the chat oh, can okay. you see yeah there's there's good old emma again so so therefore um when you are trying to say you're philosophizing what is god is god personal is god impersonal the idea here is that you have to posit you have to propose some concept of god the characteristics of whom or which are adequate to explain the world as you know it in other words, if you say, I think God is this, and then you say, is it reasonable to presume that a God of that nature could or would produce the world as we know it? And if the answer is no, it's not a good idea. So what we find in this world is that it's a very personal world. For example, uh, if you study the, what they used to call the chain of being, I mean, evolution, we won't get at all the... By the way, we're actually moving into a post-Darwinian phase. It's, it's actually quite interesting because with revolutionary advances in microbiology, uh, scientists and philosophers of science are seeing that um, living organisms at a microbiological level are actually like hundreds if not thousands of times more complex than they were imagined before and millions of times more complex than, than Darwin could have known in his time. And so therefore the idea that these like ridiculously complex mechanisms like your body just kind of, you know, the wind blew, the rain fell, uh, and then maybe there was some seismic activity, and, you know, what do you know? Here are these, like, ridiculously, infinitely complex supercomputers, which are bodies. So more and more scientists, not religious people, not, you know, preachers, just scientists and philosophers at really good universities starting to say, wait a second, we've got to come up with a theory which matches what we now know about microbiology. 
anyway, I won't go into all that, but there is actually an intellectual revolution going on even as we speak. I mean, it, you know, it moves at its own speed, historical speed, uh, and, but it's happening. It's happening all over the place. For historical reasons, I won't go into now for sort of very obvious historical reasons, but so the idea of a person, we are personal, and if we study the evolutionary chain, however evolution occurred, um, the more advanced a creature is, in our view, the more developed its personality. Like if you say that, um, I gave this example last night, that uh, you know I have a pet worm, and he has a great personality. Like he really understands me. Very unlikely. Or if you say that, yeah, I really, I would say my frog is actually my best friend. You know, that's very, that's not going to happen. People say, you know, dog is a man's best friend. Or when you get into certain more advanced mammals, you know, some people are really attached to horses, like the horse whisperer. And so when you get into advanced mammals, yeah, they are more intelligent. They are more personal. And when you really live with animals, I was going for physical therapy in San Diego recently, and uh, one of the ladies there uh, spends quality time with goats because she works at an animal shelter. And she was, you know, she's not like a religious person. She was just swearing that every goat has their own personality. You know, this, the ones who I work with, they know me, they react when they see me, and these are goats. You know, very few goats are admitted into the University of Texas because of their low SAT scores. But so the point is, as creatures become more intelligent, they become more personal. And when we get sort of like a self-feeding monster, like people, certain people that have high political positions in this country, who really cannot do anything except consume, you know, try to accumulate power and wealth and, and obviously don't care about other people, then we consider that person to be uh, primitive. The more personal people are, the greater their powers of empathy and sympathy, the more advanced we think they are. So therefore, if that's the vector, if that's where evolution goes, if you're talking about a supreme being, you would expect to find a supremely sympathetic, empathetic, conscious, personal being. And to propose an impersonal being, first of all, it goes against everything we know of just the advancement of consciousness in this world and also it simply cannot explain the world as we know it because why would an impersonal deity create a world first of all an impersonal truth wouldn't create anything because that's a personal act i mean you don't accidentally create a universe and why would you do it you couldn't have a motive because if you had a motive you're a person so, I mean, you've got to really dig down into what it means not to be a person. No motives, no intention, no purpose, no values, no activities. And, and the idea that something like that can logically explain the world as we know it, I think, is absurd. So if we can get over this, I mean, I mean, I know when I went to college, you know, centuries ago, it's like one of the first big words you learned was anthropomorphism, which made you think you were intelligent. Uh, but anyway, yeah, go ahead, Leelanda. What's that? Then why? Then why bhakti yoga? Why bhakti yoga? Because I get because if you take it up. I get a cut. 
I actually, this is how I make a living. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Uh, <laughs> so why bhakti yoga first of all the word yoga here um means a, a a process a systematic process and so if you want to be a great athlete if you want to be a great musician if you want to be a great anything a great scholar if you want to be a great parent or if you just want to have a great relationship with another person uh, it, you have to really practice. It takes a lot of work. And so it's just the way the world is that you cannot be really good at anything unless you practice. And so if you want to be really good at higher consciousness, you have to practice. You get what you pay for. As far as bhakti, bhakti means devotion or love. And if you think about it, what else could be a candidate for the highest state of consciousness if not for love? I mean, you know, having a perfect golf swing or so, I mean, if you think about it, when, when, when people fall in love, they know when you really fall in love and it turns out you weren't deceived and you didn't as, as often happens, you didn't fall in love with your own image of a person. And then when you found out who the person really is, it's like, can I get my money back? So, but let's say you really fall in love. Then who? I mean, what person that has ever really fallen in love would ever think that something else is greater than that? And so real love, not the kind of jealous, possessive love that's just a you know psychological disorder. But when you really love someone, um, when you really love someone, uh, you become generous, kind, uh, caring, real love not possessive mania but real love brings out the best in you it brings out just who you really are as a generous spiritual being and so bhakti yoga means a systematic practice of love and that, that may seem contradictory like because we may think love is just spontaneous how can you practice loving well ask anyone who has successfully sustained a relationship or a marriage Everyone I've ever met that sustained a marriage will say, yeah, it took a lot of work because it's only too easy to leave somebody. And it takes a lot of sincerity and determination and diligence to really, because people are different. And they sometimes irritate each other. And, and so you can practice loving. You can practice being unselfish. You can practice forgiveness. You can practice remembering the good qualities of the person you're trying to love. Of course, there are lines that the person can cross in which you justified in exiting, but I'm saying assuming the other person is being true to you and, and faithful to your mutual commitment, and uh, you practice, you have to practice to, to achieve pure love. Pure love is a great thing. It's not just that every time your love endorphins are firing, you know, you have achieved pure love. As we know, endorphins can be very misleading, and there are billions of people who thought they were really in love who then actually not only rejected the other person, but in many cases thought, you know, that person becomes your number one enemy, or that, you know, that, like, that's the last person in the world I ever want to see again. Because the more you become attached to someone, the more power they have to hurt you. 
And some people exercise that power. And so to achieve real love, to achieve real love is, it, 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 it's a lifelong dedication. And so in the case of bhakti yoga, uh, dedicating yourself to developing spiritual love where you actually love every soul. You love every soul. It's like, for example, let's say you grew up in a family and you have a sibling you never met, a sister, a brother you never met. And then for whatever reason, we can invent, you know, all kinds of stories. Let's say you never met this person. And then finally one day, it could be, for example, in the old days, because they lived behind the Iron Curtain. Or, I mean, sometimes people are separated by, by political regimes. And then finally, after years, you, you are reunited with someone, a parent or a sibling. And immediately, there's love for that person. If you love your family, if you're a fortunate person that loves their family, and you find someone finally who is part of that family, you love them at once. And immediately there, there's a bond. And so in the same way, when you really understand that we're all souls, then when you see anyone, you realize that's my sibling. Because there's really only one family in the universe. We have Radha and Krishna, you know, the supreme male, supreme female. And, uh, and so when you really understand that, then every soul, no matter what kind of body they have, no matter what kind of human body they have, no matter what species they're in, you may not be able to have an intelligent conversation like with a, you know, a squirrel, but still you can see that within that body is an eternal soul. That's my eternal sibling. They just somehow, you know, took a few wrong turns and ended up in a squirrel body, but, you know, they'll bounce back. And so, so this universal love, this universal empathy, it comes from Krishna consciousness. So Bhakti Yoga, if someone's got a better idea, you know, tell me and I'll join that. But the point is, like, Krishna also, I mean, the idea that God is infinitely beautiful, not just infinitely jealous. I mean, God doesn't really need a bunch of 12-step programs, you know, for anger management and jealousy and et cetera, et cetera. And so Krishna is infinitely beautiful. The idea of God is infinitely beautiful. It's, uh, I concluded this is the best game in town. And if someone could show me something which is a more sublime conception, I will seriously consider it. I'm not a religious fanatic. I actually continue to do what I did the day I walked into Hare Krishna Temple. Oh my God, I walked in. Anyway, so I'm still, I'm doing this thing, I'm pursuing my rational self-interest. And the reason I started Krishna West is because I'm not just, I don't just do things or believe things because someone told me. You know, I want to see the logic of it. I want to see that it's reasonable. And so everything I'm doing personally in my life I do because it's reasonable and it works. And things that like certain rituals or certain even superstitions that many people that chant Hare Krishna thought you got to do this, you got to do that. I just thought, well, no, it doesn't make sense to me. So, you know, have fun if it pleases you. But so in Krishna West, what we're presenting is a, a, a scientific, a spiritual science, not superstition, not mythology 
not just sort of, uh, you know, faith alone, but a true spiritual science. And also, last thing I'll say is we're not using you as guinea pigs because this spiritual science has been working very effectively for thousands of years. So it's not that, you know, I invented a new religion. Now I, I want to try it out on you. It's not like that. This has been going on for thousands of years. And if you read even ancient histories of India, such as um, there was a Greek ambassador to India about 2,300 years ago named Megasthenes, and uh, soon to be a ma major motion picture. Actually not. But so Megasthenes wrote a best-selling book about India called in Greek called Indica, which means about India. He describes this amazingly advanced society, a society with human rights, with animal rights, with, uh, I mean, it's just amazing. The, the, it was the richest country in the world at that time. And um, just a very enlightened society, society practically free of crime, uh, free of exploitation. It's, um, it, it's amazing. And so, and the yoga, of course, yoga came from this. So what we're presenting to you is uh, a process, a spiritual science, which in the past produced a great civilization and can do so again, and can also infinitely enhance our own consciousness. So that's why we do Bhakti Yoga. That's why I do it. Yeah. Do you think we ought to emulate Krishna? We ought to, we ought to emulate, did you say? Yeah, I, I think we should emulate Krishna. In fact, Krishna invites us to emulate him in the Bhagavad Gita. He says that, um, that even though I don't have to perform religious duties because, you know, based on who I am, but still, I do it anyway when I come to this earth because I want to set a good example. Because if I don't do the right thing in my name, other people will not do the right thing. It may not affect me, but it will affect them. So Krishna does say, yes, that it's everyone's duty. Everyone who is uh, on the spiritual path or, or, or Krishna himself, it's their duty to set a good example for others, not to mislead others. And... Uh, at the same time, there's certain things Krishna does that we can't do. For example, let's say someone's a, a, an Olympic medalist in, in the high dive and you're just a beginner. Don't emulate them. I mean, you can study them and try to learn the technique. When I was at, uh, there's this really nice, really nice little college town in West Texas called um, Alpine, Texas. It's 4,000 feet up. It's amazing. It's this college campus, but it has no parking signs. In other words, you just drive on the campus and park anywhere. I mean, if you're at the University of Texas, you know, you drive on the campus and you can't park anywhere, which is like practically every university nowadays. But um, yeah, so it's a really nice little college town, the natural food store, the town of like 6,000 people. And so I was walking on the campus and I saw this ad for the skydiving club. 
And it said, if at first you don't succeed, don't join this club. So, so we can, usually the, the, the distinction that's made is you can follow Krishna, but you can't imitate him. If someone is a great, a great personality, there are certain things you can't imitate, you can't do, but in terms of the basics, yes, we should follow. And Krishna himself comes to this world, that, that the word is avatar. Uh, in Sanskrit, ava means downward. And tara means crossing. So when a great soul crosses from the spiritual realm down into this realm, that's called avatara. That's actually what the word literally means. So, uh, yeah, so Krishna comes and other great teachers come. Uh, try to help us, try to teach us, try to give us an example. Yes. So it's yes and no. The what? So the answer to that question is yes and no. Yes. yes so yes, we should follow something, but there are limitations. Yeah, there, there are things we, they're just far, far beyond us. But in terms of the basic practice of spiritual life, yes, Krishna does set an example. Um, so as souls, um, what is our relationship to Krishna and how did we come to get into this like cycle of incarnation? Very good question. Um, our relationship to Krishna is you could say like the part, like the part, of, the part to the whole. For example, Prabhupada used to give the example of the hand, which can only feed itself by giving the food to the stomach, to the mouth and to the stomach. And so even if you have the most powerful hand in the world, you can crush stones in your hand, uh, you, you still can't eat. The hand still can't eat. And another example that's given is, um, this is from the Bhagavatam, an ancient text, watering the root of a tree. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of jokes in Sanskrit, actually. If you look at the ancient text, they, they, were, they had a real sense of humor. So one word for a tree is padapa, which means a foot drinker. Because a tree drinks through its its roots, its feet. So, so the the actual verse in Sanskrit is jatatarodmulanishechanena, just as by watering the root of a tree, tripyanti taskanda bujopasaka, that the trunk of the tree, the branches, the twigs, everything is satisfied. And so, when we try to enjoy separately, it's like the hand trying to eat. The hand will just starve. So when we try to engage in hedonism at some level and simply try to pursue our own pleasure, what we get is probably the most neurotic society in recent history. You know, sort of like, uh, you know, planet, planet pharmaceutical. And so we have an extremely neurotic society. All the studies show that, well, you know the stuff. So that's because that comes from people. It's like if you take a leaf on a tree, and you pull it off the tree, the leaf loses its life. I mean, a leaf, in a sense, is part of a living system. And the leaf is nourished by being part of a tree. 
when it's separated from the tree, it just, you know, it dies. It, it no longer shows symptoms of life. So when we separate ourselves from the source of our existence, just like the source of a leaf is the tree, the whole tree. And so Krishna is the source of our existence. When we detach ourselves, separate ourselves from the source of our existence, we begin to lose everything. We begin to lose our spiritual qualities, which are, as souls, we have unlimited happiness. We're completely satisfied. We have inconceivable knowledge. And we live forever. And when we separate ourselves, the word yoga means to connect back to the source. And vi-yoga means to separate. So when we separate from the source of our own existence, then we begin to lose those three qualities rather than experiencing eternal life, which is just, that's who we are. We, we experience mortality. We enter into bodies, material bodies. We identify with those bodies. And then we, we have death experiences. Now, obviously, we could not possibly be our bodies. It's logically impossible. Because you know, at the deepest level, I mean, you know as much or more than you know anything. That let's say when you had a child's body, that was you. You were the child. You were the you know, young teenager. Now you are the student. It was you, and yet it's not the same body. You know, you are what you eat, and we are constantly changing the body. And so the body, I mean, just divide your age by seven, and that's how many times you've already reincarnated. So the question, is there reincarnation, is not really a serious question, because you've already done it. Just divide your age by seven. The question, of course, is does it continue? But you can't be the body, because like the skin, the skin replaces itself in two weeks. You get re-skinned every two weeks. And seven years, your whole body. And so, but it's still you. So the question is, who are you? And, and, and when you reconnect to the source, it, it, it's like if you say you turn on a lamp and the light doesn't go on, it's because it has somehow become cut off from the electric source. And you've got to find out where that separation took place reconnect it and the light goes on so you just have to reconnect to krishna and the lights go on you remember krishna actually says there's one very poignant verse in the bhagavatam where krishna says to a soul that's suffering do you remember me do you remember me and so you can remember actually plato also teaches that plato is kind of like sort of a uh halfway Hare Krishna guy. So, and Plato, there's, he, he wrote a dialogue called the Mino, which he talks about remembering knowledge. The soul remembers what it already knew. And so when you remember that you're eternal, you lose your fear of death. When you remember your true happiness, which is unlimited, you don't have to beg unworthy people uh, to make you happy. You don't have to you know, run all over the world trying to find happiness. You can just sit down anywhere and feel amazing happiness. And that gives you the luxury to choose the right friends. 
it gives you the luxury only to do what with your intelligence you know to be the best thing for you. And you remember all the spiritual knowledge. So it's just a question of reconnecting. That's what the word yoga means. It's that reconnecting. <laughs> Actually, in, um, let's have a couple more minutes because at, well, six o'clock my time, I guess seven o'clock your time, uh, was some, uh, People are coming from the university, Arizona State University. Is that you too? Yes. First victim already arrived. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, University of Texas is a great school. And uh, I think it's just so inspiring to see that, uh, that this knowledge is being offered at that school. It's one of the great universities in the world. So, any other point? Just to <clears throat> clarify. Yes. What you're saying that is that like this continuous part of ourselves, that is like the leaf on the tree, which is Krishna. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's right. You are. You. Um, oh, echo. Oh, I can echo. turn that down. A yeah, you are, um, it's funny, the sort of the terrible irony in this world it is that it's a world of vanity, especially nowadays, my God. It's sort of like the in thing now is narcissism. But um, I was, I used to, up until recently, I lived for many years very close to UCLA, which has a very beautiful campus. And uh, so I would walk there almost every day, take a morning walk there. And so at certain times of the year, they have those tours. I'm sure you see them all the time. They're giving prospective students tours. And I remember one, they were giving one tour and the girl was saying, talking about the um, study abroad program. And she was emphasizing that, like, no one's gonna tell you what to do. And, you know, you make your own program and you do what you want. And I was thinking, oh my God, what about the remote possibility that some of the people have been doing this all their lives actually know more about it. And so it was just this, nar and, and I see at UCLA, it's a good school. I mean, you know, I, I got my undergraduate degree there. I don't want to knock it, but, and, and it is, a, you know, it's a nice school, but, but uh, yeah, they, you know how that schools, they put up banners on campus. They have different themes and different, every month they put up banners on something. And so, I mean, it's always like, you're so great and you can do it and you're wonderful and, I was just thinking, oh my God. Like when I was young, people used to value modesty. That used to be a virtue. And the only way to encourage people wasn't just to flatter them and tell them they're perfect and great. You could, people weren't that, um, what's the word, needy. So, um, anyway, I don't know how I got into that, but yeah, so. So I hope I hope you'll uh, really benefit from Krishna consciousness. I hope you really benefit from it. Sorry for that little comment on narcissism. It's just uh, I don't know how I got into that. I'm not interested in what you say, and if you want to continue, I was like I liked what you were saying. I was interested in hearing more. Like, oh oh. Um. What more could I say? Um. 
humility is really a virtue. Not low self-esteem, not that you think I'm terrible, I'm bad. No, but, you know, to be happy in your own skin, as they say, to be, you know, to be a happy person, but just to, to also be very happy to meet people who, who maybe are greater than me. Like, like I met my teacher actually at a, at a program at Berkeley on campus. So I first met my teacher, Prabhupada. And um, for me, it was just this shocking realization that it, the whole world didn't exist for my enjoyment, which I thought previously, but that actually um, I was meant to serve. And that by serving, I would really be happy. I mean, not serving because someone is beating me down or I'm like, sort of a male version of Cinderella or something, but but really, but serving out of devotion. The way good parents take care of their children, it gives them the greatest happiness to to do things for their children. And so to realize that I'm that by serving, by helping, by trying to help other people to be happy, that I can really be happy. That is the greatest happiness. That ultimately there's an infinitely beautiful, infinitely intelligent person with whom I can have a great relationship. And if I can establish that relationship, all my other relationships will be healthy and appropriate and pleasing to me because I'll have criteria. I, I, I will have judgment and I can, I, I, I will know what my real self-interest is and I will choose relationships, friends and so on, partners, who actually really respect me as a spiritual being, who understand me, who are dedicated to my ultimate self-interest and not just to exploiting me for their own emotional or physical needs. So it's one-stop shopping for a great life. And today is, what is today? Black Monday? So, <laughs> So yeah, so, I, um, what's that? What sort of values and like ideals should like a Krishna devotee like have besides loving the community? Like, what sort of way should we go about our lives? Um, well, first of all, disciplined life, you know, regulated life. In fact, psychological studies show that having certain regulation in your life, like getting up approximately the same time every day and having a you know, a some kind of routine, not an oppressive routine, but just having an organized, disciplined life actually makes people happy. It actually creates a sense of happiness. And when people, too much freedom just leads to depression, actually, because you don't have a sense of purpose in your life. And so we have we have a practice, a bhakti yoga practice. We tend to rise early, and it, it's it's not difficult to, to get up early. It's difficult to go to bed early because you're only going to sleep so many hours. And if you think about it, in, in, in before people moved into industrialized cities, when they lived in nature, I had the experience of living for a year or two on a farm we have beautiful, it's like Shangri-La, a beautiful farm in Brazil, and there was no electricity. You know, we just had gas lanterns. And when you're living in nature, uh, when the sun goes down, you just, you just kind of head home. That's what people do. When the sun goes down, it's time to go home. 
and you know maybe you have some lanterns or some lamps or candles for a while and you actually start to get sleepy and then you you take rest at a, you know you take rest somewhat early and then you get up early and there's you know there's things to do and every day you witness the incredible incredible super high-tech light show which is called sunrise it's like it's staggering I mean, it's really amazing you meditate in the early in the morning you meditate you see the sunrise you fix your consciousness or as they say nowadays and what do they say in yoga classes fix your intention so so you 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 fix your consciousness you're happy more than happy and then you spend the day doing your duties and trying to do all the good you can for other people and for yourself and that of course involves spiritual practice of chanting it involves offering our food because i mean just like you hopefully you wouldn't go to a say a whole foods market and pick out the stuff you want and just walk out with it uh, you're you know technically you're supposed to go to the cashier and pay for it and so in the same way it's not that god wants to do business with us it's rather that um gratitude ingratitude is a very ugly thing i mean if you really imagine yourself if you really tried hard you really put out to help someone and they just they don't even say thank you you know that it's uh you know they they had they they don't care anything about all all you've done for them it just means nothing to them they're just moving on to the next sucker it's uh you know it's not a nice thing and so gratitude i think is uh sine qua non you know it's just an essential quality for a good life we should cultivate gratitude we should remember to be grateful and you know the miracle of food the fact that food grows you can't eat plastic i mean the fact that it rains and food grows it's it's miraculous and the fact that we can sit down and nourish ourselves and it's it's a it's absolutely a time to be grateful and not to be grateful it's just to be something like a spoiled brat and so it's 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 just a time to be grateful and so there are you know we we offer the food is a word we use it's it's just really to show some gratitude to understand that something has been given to us with love and that we should receive it you know with with love and gratitude and then I mean, this is a this is a tough planet to save, as you all know. You know, whether it's environmentally or spiritually, and so it's just like, for example, if you ever watch those movies where, you know, some alien's going to take over the world or an asteroid is going to collide with the Earth, destroying life as we know it, and suddenly there's no time for trivial pursuits. Everyone has to work together, and so when things really get tough, people have to cooperate, and if people and so working together to try to spiritualize the world because otherwise all these freedom movements i mean if history shows one thing it's that today's freedom fighters are tomorrow's tyrants that's a, there's a very long history of that and so unless people really become spiritualized they're just going to be selfish like everyone else I and mean, look at daniel ortega in nicaragua or i won't even talk about american politics it's, uh, but but if you look 
I mean, there's just too many examples of people who were the great freedom fighters and just turned into the most selfish tyrants. So unless you really purify yourself, your consciousness, unless we free ourselves from greed and lust and, and just the desire to use and abuse other people, then you know, how are we really going to change the world? That's what inspired me when I, um, you know, signed up. Uh, I, uh, first of all, I wanted a spiritual science. I didn't want a new religion. I already had a religion. My parents gave it to me. So I was absolutely not in the market for a new religion. And, um, and I absolutely was not looking for rituals. I was not looking for, you know, mythology or superstition. I just wanted one thing. I wanted a spiritual science, non-sectarian, non-fanatical, a spiritual science. Actually, I made that decision on a train going from the southern coast of Spain to Madrid. I've been all over Europe, and I just I, and I already seen America. And I wrote in my little journal that um, I wanted to focus on understanding the highest truth, not just belief. I wasn't looking for a belief system. I was looking for experience. I wanted to. I didn't want to just you know pop a pill and go into some consciousness. I actually wanted to go to higher consciousness, stay there. I wanted higher consciousness to be my new normal. And I want to do it through a spiritual science, not something we just, you know, a spiritual science, a real spiritual science. And that's what probably my teacher gave me. And so that's what I'm trying to give to other people, not a new religion, uh, not simply something to blindly believe in, uh, not a warm, fuzzy community for people that have trouble making friends, but rather, because I, I actually had lots of friends, but a spiritual science, a non-sectarian, non-fanatical spiritual science so that you can rise to this incredible higher consciousness and just live there. So, now I do the ad where you all send money in and I pray for you. Just kidding, that was a joke. So thank you all very much. Thank you, Shalish. Thank, thank, thank you. Yeah, it's really a pleasure to meet you guys. And uh, I mean, it really is I'm not just saying this, be polite, but it really is a pleasure for me to meet all of you and to see that all these, you know, really amazing young people are somehow trying to understand the spiritual science. It's, it's very encouraging because you really are the future hope of the world. Your generation, you know, eventually and is really the hope of the world. So, Alvida Zen. Thank you very much. Yeah, hope to see you guys again soon. Bye bye. 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 people. Oh, and we are on Facebook. We have people around the world on Facebook. Don't forget to send your checks in. Okay, thank you all very much. See you guys later, actually very soon.